hardcore was this really dramatic moment. It was, it was kind of a break with the past. It, it was very inventive. It was highly creative time. But it also was very appealing to young men who were trying to grab some part of social and sexual power for themselves in their youth. And what I saw after I started in the software industry, especially in the early aughts, I saw a lot of the same thing. You know, as Agile comes in, actually, as Agile comes into the, the software industry, you saw a lot of that rock and roll. The new rock stars were programmers. And these, these guys were starting, you know, startups, you know, when they were in their teens, right? And in their 20s. Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me. Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Vic Bondi. Vic is a business technologist having held senior positions at Microsoft and consulting for startups through large companies. He is also one of the founding members of the political Chicago punk band, Articles of Faith. He was an assistant professor of history and author of a series of books called American Decades. We discuss how Microsoft culture has evolved from the 90s to today and how a phone machine negotiated his first Microsoft contract. Vic tells us about the three stages of developing as a musician and asks, is software the new rock and roll? And finally, he describes a way of thinking that ties together his three careers in music, software development, and history. All right, Vic Bondi, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. So, uh, Vic, you are a man of many talents. Um, if we do a quick Google search on you, uh, your website says you're a business technologist. You build stuff. 20 years of experience in the software industry. Wikipedia says you're an American singer-songwriter a founding member of the Chicago punk band Articles of Faith. If you keep Googling, you are the also an author of American Decades. It sounds like you've had a very varied career, lots of career transitions, maybe even lots of separate careers. So if you start, maybe you can just tell us what you're doing now and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I've, I've really had three separate careers in my life so far. Who knows where it'll go next? But I started in the music business one of the founding members of Articles of Faith. That was an American hardcore band, one of the first hardcore band in the country. And so even today, kind of an influential band, even though we were never a really popular band, but the style of music that we pioneered inspired a lot of people, continues to inspire a lot of people. I mean, Articles of Faith did play really fast, really noisy punk rock. Uh, but one of the things that we did differently than the other hardcore bands is uh, the rhythm section of the band was very capable. And so we introduced a lot of elements of jazz and reggae and uh, R&B into the back end of it. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complex and nuanced sound uh, more than kind of just like straight, you know, four, four punk. So because of that, it became an influential group. That was my first career. 
you know, music is a hard business and we can talk about that and why we weren't successful. We weren't ultimately successful at making a living with that style, that style of music. In uh, 1985, I started in graduate school and I started my second career as a historian and author. And then I got my PhD from BU in 1992. I wrote a series of books and uh, taught for about eight years, college and, and graduate school. And then in 1995, because of the books that I had done, American Decades, Microsoft contacted me about a project that they were working on in 1995. It was going to be a history of the millennium. Um, and they were going to release this as a CD-ROM in 1999 for the end of the millennium. And it was called Millennium. And uh, there was a software designer named Bill Flora. He showed me this incredible director-based demo. I don't know if you guys remember director, director-based demo of, uh, of uh, Millennium. Had beautiful moving pictures and text. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. So I came out in um, July 4th of 1995. I came out to Redmond and I consulted with Microsoft for a couple of weeks. And then I went back to Boston to get ready for the next semester. And it was, it was kind of mind-blowing. I, I, I actually did not know Microsoft very well. I didn't know computers very well. I, um, I had written my dissertation on an IBM PC clone using WordStar. And uh, that was about all I knew of computers. And um, I mean, I had, I, had, I had gone to like, you know, in the 80s, you would have gone to the computer lab at your college and you would have mucked around with a little programming, some print command and watch it come out, you know, from the, from the, the printer machine in those days, you know, on those monochromatic screens and, uh, but you know, nothing, nothing sophisticated. I just wasn't, my mind wasn't there. So Microsoft was really an unknown quantity for me, but I had never engaged with such a, an amazing group of really, really brilliant people of, of very diverse skills and backgrounds. It was kind of mind blowing. And I went back to Boston and my brain was just racing. How do I tell the story of a thousand years on a computer? And is this the way we're going to teach in the future? Are we all going to teach through computers? Maybe there's, I mean, I was just, I was absolutely flabbergasted by my experience in building 18 for two weeks. So then I came, I, I came back and I got a call from Paul Shustak, who is the program manager for Microsoft. And he's like, this is maybe three weeks after I was out there. He's like, I got good news and I got bad news for you. I'm like, okay, give me the bad news first. He's like, the bad news is they've canceled the project. I'm like, oh, that's such a drag. I was so excited by it. And uh, the, what's the good news? He's like, well, they really like you and they want you to come out and interview for a job. I thought, well, okay, I'll fly out with the help. I did the interview rounds. Um, I did two days of interviews with 14 people. In those days, Microsoft had a policy that you had to get a unanimous hire uh, from the 14 people that interviewed me. So if any one of them had said no, I wouldn't have gotten hired. And I'll talk about why that's important in a minute. Um, but I, 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 I did the interviews and I flew back to Boston. And I told them, look, I told Elliot, who was the recruiter, I'm like, look, I'm going to be teaching in the fall. I was going to teach European intellectual history, which I had never taught before. I was very excited about it, actually. I had, I had all this stuff set up about from Wittgenstein to Sartre that I was very interested in. And um, so I was ready for this class and I had a bunch of other classes scheduled for the fall too. But I told Elliot, look, I'm going to be teaching. So once classes start, I have an obligation to the students. So if you're going to make me a job offer, you need to make it before the start of school year. 
And he's like, yep, yep, I got it. Absolutely understand. And then I don't hear from him. And so um, we're getting closer and closer to Labor Day. And I haven't heard from Elliot. I haven't heard from Microsoft. And so my girlfriend and I, uh, we decide we'll go out to Provincetown on the Cape for Labor Day and have a little vacation before the start of school. I have everything all set up. I've got my books ordered, classes are set up, et cetera. I haven't heard from Elliot. So I, we go out to Provincetown. And I just assume I didn't get the job. And then when I get back from Provincetown, I have a, one of those old phone machines, right? The cassette based phone machines. And it, it's filled with phone messages. So beep. Hey, it's Elliot from Microsoft. I want to let you know that everybody loved you. We want you for the job. Give me a call back. We'll talk about it. Beep. Hey, it's Elliot. I didn't hear back from you. I want to let you know that as part of the job offer, we're going to give you uh, two extra weeks of vacation a year just at the start. Uh, just wanted this as an incentive. Beep. Hey, it's Elliot. Didn't hear from back from you. Wanted to let you know that we're going to give you another share of 2000 stock options if you'll, if you'll join right away. Beep. Hey, it's Elliot. Didn't, want, didn't hear from me. Wanted to let you know. So my phone machine negotiated my contract with Microsoft because Every time he would call me back because he hadn't heard from me, he would throw another option. You know, two weeks vacation at the beginning of your tenure. They paid for my entire trip across country. I mean, it was it was hilarious. And um, so then when I, I called him back and then I said, yeah, I'll take the job. After all that great negotiation, my phone machine did. And um, uh, that's how I got the job at Microsoft. And then we did, we did this mad scrambling for me to throw, pawn off my classes to some colleagues uh, to make sure that they got covered and had to change all the books and all this stuff. But it was, it was, it was absolutely great. And so in October of 1995, I started at Microsoft. Then I've been in the software industry ever since. I love the, the, the negotiation. That's uh, they always say that tactic. If you can hold your tongue and, and, and allow the, the silence and let the other person get nervous and say something. So your machine did it for you. <laughs> yeah. And it was great. Cause like, I didn't know, I honestly, I had no clue what stock options were or what was the right, you know, go in price. So the fact that he kept, you know, giving me another couple thousand dollars, you know, in terms of my entry level price, it turns out that, that that's actually super important. However, you come into the industry, whatever your, your entry point is, if, if it's, if it's super high, um, you know, just in terms of the base compensation, it's going to make subsequent negotiation a lot easier, which I didn't know at the time, but. The next 10 years where the learning curve was very steep for me because I knew nothing about software industry. And at the time, Microsoft had this intensive training program for all of its employees. They, what was great about Microsoft in those days when Bill ran the company was it, it really was built on this idea of building the best possible skills amongst the employees that you possibly could. And, and in those days, Microsoft, they, they did, there wasn't enough computer programming program uh, there weren't college programs in computer program. There wasn't enough of them. The country wasn't churning out enough computer programmers for them just to hire out of school. So they're, they're bringing in guys like me, have no experience, seem to have the right level of curiosity about the medium or the right ability to uptake into the medium quickly. They're, you know, they're, they're focused or logical thinkers, so they tend to work well. And that's the importance of that 14-person no-hire, right? So in those days, if you don't have pedigrees and standards that you can utilize for your industry, what you have to do is you have to do a fairly thorough vetting of the people you are bringing in to make sure that at least they had the raw skills that you could train up, which is what Microsoft did. And so then after that, you, you go into this intensive. My, my 
um, my MBA is from Microsoft and all my computer programming skills are from Microsoft's computer development, software development skills are from them. And it all came out of that period. So, and the other thing about that, that intense hire process is that once you were in, you had a sense of, you were, you had a sense of being amongst the elect, right? The, the culture of Microsoft in those days was very, very rough. I mean, um, around conference tables in those days, there were things that would be never pass muster today with HR. You know, people would cuss at each other and call each other foul names. I mean, it, it, and it really happened. But the problem, the, the issue was that because all of you had gone through that process, it didn't matter, right? Uh, you, were all, you were all members of that club. And therefore, in some ways, it was a lot more freewheeling than it is now. But Microsoft couldn't scale fast enough with that system in place, and they abandoned it around 98, 99. And so they went to more sort of normal HR processes. And also at that time, finally, the, the universities around the country are catching up and they're churning out more engineers, you know. And I think your story of the 90s kind of coming in without a technology background is a very familiar story for many of us in the 90s. We hear about people coming into the software industry accidentally, English majors, in your case, history, musicians, like we're going to get into that as well. And uh, something you struck me about the, uh, that struck me about what you said about the hiring process, uh, you kind of described hiring for potential, not for ac- actual experience. And I wonder if today that's, that's a time that's passed. Like, we can, can we hire for potential now and train people? Or is the industry has moved on from, from those days in the 90s where we're looking for people across across different backgrounds? I don't, I don't think the industry hires for potential anymore. I, I think, I think what, what, where potential is found in the industry today is in startups. So again, because the industry is so large, so a startup, because of what a startup is, you're already hiring for potential or it's it, everything involved with a startup is potential. None, none of it's reality. So what the software industry does now a big company like Microsoft or Apple or Google, what they will do is they will, um, their processes are bureaucratized and normed and their hiring processes are bureaucratized and normed. But what they do is with that, the more radical, uh, non, non-conventional thinker, non-conforming thinker, um, an individual, those folks are in startups. And what the bureaucratized giant behemoths will do is they will acquire the startups. So they will buy the potential, but they don't train it anymore. Right. They don't, they don't, they don't lift it up. They let it, they put it in the jungle, let it thrive or die. And then they pick up the ones that thrive. I think that's right. I think, I think it's very perceptive. So you mentioned a 27 year career approximately in, in software. If I kind of do the math, maybe you spent more time in software than your other careers, history and music, bit of a philosophical question. How do you think of yourself these days? A technologist who is a musician, as a second career, a musician who is in technology now. How do you think of yourself? Well, one thing is it's very hard to stay current in software, right? So I think I'm like a lot of the older guys in software business that, you know, the amount of time that I actually, you know, you on the weekends, you actually have to spend time uh, learning things, right? So um, blockchain is fascinating to me, but I'm too late for it. I, I don't think I could ever learn it at this point, right? 
So I'm not even going to try. And um, I find I find I find the software industry you're constantly sprinting and it's difficult. So I don't know. I'm I'm real. What I like about software, um, I like the architectures and the systems. I like the way the systems work together, and I like the way. Um, as you were saying before, the elegance of certain systems. So there's there's a lot of interest that I still have in software engineering um, at a kind of an abstract level, but it's it's a sprint for me still, and I'm fall and I'm and I'm kind of falling behind, and I, and that's one reason why, you know, you see the industry they start to age people out after fifty. <laughs> They're just like after you cross that fifty year mark, they start saying. Eh. Cost benefit analysis of this guy versus his healthcare. I don't know, you know. Um, uh, so I, I don't know whether software will be with me in my dotage, right? I don't know whether that's the stuff that I'll really be focused on. Um, history, you know, I never stopped being a historian. I just, I just during the pandemic year, I launched this history podcast, Executive Decision, um, that I've been working on quite a bit. And the reason I did it was partly coming out of software. You know, we used to do all this executive training at Microsoft. I, I think I told you guys before, you know, in, in my last couple of years at Microsoft, I was assigned this, this counselor. Um, and they did this for all the, uh, all the people that were in upper management at Microsoft that were on the verge of being executive, because I never made it to an executive at Microsoft. But upper management would get these coaches that were designed to give you the necessary skills to make it to executive. So that, um, and you'd meet with these guys every two weeks or so and you 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 talk over problems but in a lot of ways they were like they were like in-house psychologists you know you could talk about anything with those fellows and but you know I came out of that training I was fascinated by the fact that all these trainings in executive management and leadership that I was given by Microsoft never really focused on the decision making process like what constitutes a good decision how do you make a good decision? And so executive decision, this podcast that I'm working on came out of, well, let's go, let's, let's go look at the, the most important decisions by the most important executives and see how they did it. Right. So I did, I did the Cuban missile crisis. I did the decision to drop the atomic bomb. I did the Lend-Lease decision, which is really FDR's declaration of war against Nazis. You know, how did they arrive at these things so that you could you could, you could understand the decision-making process in a way that was actually useful because we used to get all sorts of, I mean, all sorts of, I don't know how many of those Myers-Briggs, some training that came up from Stanford where you were red or blue or green or yellow. There were all kinds of different trainings that they used to give us. But like, I, I, my interest in history has never waned from the days when I was paid to be a historian. I don't think it ever will. Because it's just, my mind is really hard wired towards development and process. And history is kind of the objective study of development and process. And so it, it holds, it, it, I mean, it's really, it's a very core passion. And then um, music, my first career, also still a really core passion. I'm in, I'm, in a, I'm in a new band that I picked up here in Seattle and Redshift. And it's more like a surf rock band. And I still, I still like to explore and stretch out as a, as a guitarist. Um, I, I still want to play better than I did when I was a teenager. So I'm still trying to find more ways around the instrument that I hadn't discovered at the outset. 
Um, and one of the things that's most fascinating for me is like the deepest friendships that I have in my life have all come through music. I'm not, I'm not sure why, maybe it's something to do with uh, the way in which music links you unconsciously to one another. But like my best friends are all people that I played music with. And it's often all astonishing to me that I can meet somebody that I don't really know. And if that person is a musician and we have, an, we have a similar taste in music and outlook, how fast the bond takes place. Mm. You know, um, there's nothing better for um, uncovering tribal identity than your, uh, your, your playlist. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear that uh, when you meet other software engineers. Hey, we have something <laughs> really deep in common. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there, yeah, it's, that's an interesting comic, right? You, you've, uh, you could have, and people do it form bonds with, teammates and people they work with. But I, I think I've seen that of other people too, kind of bandmates, musicians. It's it, it something maybe uh, at a deeper level. And then particularly if you, you the act of creation an artistic creation together, I'm sure is, uh, is a very bonding experience as well. And uh, that, like you say, is almost uh, unconscious or physical and, and touches you somewhere that, uh, you know, putting out a product, you know, can maybe happen sometimes but uh you know as part of a corporation but maybe it's not the same it's not um well so there there is a thing about there's an intimacy to being in a band um that's that anybody that's been in a band can tell you about right like um you know this is why you you develop these great loves and these great hates through it too there's so many you, you often ask yourself well how is it that you can be in a band with somebody you hate because there's all these stories about bands where, where guys really don't get along like Guns N' Roses where they really dislike each other intensely and yet they get together to play and and part of it is because when you start a band that intimacy that you have around what you're doing is profound you know it's very unconscious if you're in a four-piece band each of you has a role I, I mean you almost never talk about it I mean I've never talked about it you do your thing you'll talk about well, we should structure this part this way, or maybe maybe try and take what you're doing there and invert the time on it, or why don't you shift that key to G at specific parts of songs, but you, you never really talk about your roles. It's just kind of unconscious. And if you don't execute the role well live, and if you don't, if you don't perform well live, then the band will break up, right? There's also this thing about music is, there's really three stages in developing as a musician. The first is you have to learn how to play your instrument. Uh, the second is you have to learn how to play with other people. And the third is you have to learn how to play with the audience. And, and the third is by far the hardest. Um, and it requires that kind of unconscious teamwork on the part of all the members of the band. In order to surf the vibe of an audience the right way, it's kismet. You just have to have the right thing at the right time in the right place. And, and every musician will tell you, you know, I don't, I hate playing in that town. Nothing ever goes well there. Everybody just stands there and looks at you, you know? I mean, cause that, that happens. And then in other places you play Philadelphia and they're just off the charts. They're just, you know, all over the room and you hardly did anything. You could play a shitty show and everybody's like, Oh, that's the best show I've ever seen. And you're like, no, we <laughs> sucked last night. But the audience, you vibe the audience the right way. And so learning to do that with four or five people 
and learning how to do that well, I mean, corporations would be so much more productive and so much better places to work if they could figure out how to do that, honestly. The way you describe bands reminds me in some way at a very, very small percentage of how we talk about agile teams, you know, four or five people working together, um, all roles are kind of mixed. We're all like, uh, as you said, kind of kismet, just uh, all working towards the same goal. And I wonder if, I don't think on purpose, definitely, uh, but we're trying to get in technology and agile teams, a lot of the, of the results of what you're saying is happening naturally in bands where maybe even like on purpose, people know this is what you need to get to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I, the other thing is in, in my software career, I have often wondered whether software isn't the new rock and roll, right? So, you know, when I, when, when it's easy for me to, to, con, to have the conceit that hardcore was the last great revolutionary moment in rock and roll. It's not because you had, you have EDM that comes later. You have, um, you know, it's, it is a conceit to say that, but hardcore was this really dramatic moment. It was, it was kind of a break with the past. It, it was very inventive. It was highly creative time. But it also was very appealing to young men who were trying to grab some part of social and sexual power for themselves in their youth. And what I saw after I started in the software industry, especially in the early aughts, I saw a lot of the same thing. You know, as Agile comes in, actually, as Agile comes into the, the software industry, you saw a lot of that rock and roll the new rock stars were programmers and these guys were starting, you know, startups when they were in their teens, right. And in their twenties and a lot of the same affect and social empowerment that you would see around a movement like that was happening around then after, after the, after that software crash in the early aughts, not so much. Cause then again, that highly inventive transgressive moment for the software industry breaks, it fails. And then what comes behind it is more accretive, right? It begins to be normed. So YouTube gets bought by Google, right? And once YouTube is bought by Google, it isn't the same inventive, agile rock and roll world that it was, it becomes corporatized. Uh, but it was, there was a time there when I really did wonder, I'm like, like is this the new rock and roll? I mean, computer programming is the new rock and roll, isn't it? I never thought of that. We we hear about startups being started in garages and garage bands. I mean, there's there's something there, something there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we and we re refer yeah. to you know to to superstar programs, rock stars. Or, you know, we want to hire a rock yeah. star. I mean, yeah, that's very that's a great uh, yeah. great analogy. I hadn't thought of it. That's that's very good, very good. So I like how I like how you kind of the connection you 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 have these three facets that are that are, that are all different, but you you're able to make great connections between them. I mean, the executive decision and executive decisions in corporate life, and then in a kind of historical sense, the rock star one that you just made, which was terrific. Um, is this always been? Particularly the history. I mean, did that say that the interest in history come out of an an interest in Politics is something that maybe infused your hardcore outlook or your view of corporate America. Do you, do you see kind of your your view the same as when you were kind of growing up coming through that as it shifted over time? Well, I mean, my father was in the military, right? So my dad was a uh, my dad was a naval captain, 
but he worked in the he worked in the naval security group, which is the cryptological branch of the navy, and uh, so he was the executive officer of uh, NAS Corey Field in Pensacola, which is the uh, technology training ground for uh, electronic warfare. Um, so, but my dad wasn't he wasn't a cryptographer per se, and he wasn't uh, like. Like I didn't grow up doing Sudoku and, and number games, right? In fact, actually, I was kind of a math, a math, I was inept at math. But what my father, what my father had was he had an understanding of his family dynamic in the course of history, you know, and he's 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 in this kind of golden golden age for the military just before it's broken by Vietnam, before it's tarnished and ruined forever, right? Because Coming out of World War II, not only did the military have this great moment where it had saved the world from genuine evil, but it also, the processes and the institutions that it created were efficient and best of breed. You know, is, is there a more noble American than George Marshall in 1948? Probably not, right? And he's creating these institutions that are going to li live into the 60s that my dad's a part of. And then when it's misapplied in Vietnam and you just start killing brown people for the hell of it, you, you, you ruin the institution in a lot of ways. But my dad's at that bright moment where being in the military, it was the best and the brightest and the noblest profession. And it, and it had this arc, it had this role in the national arc of the United States that I think I got a part of, you know, my dad wanted me to go to the Naval Academy. He was really keen on that. I was being groomed for it. I grew up in a very conservative household. And I, I rejected almost all of it when I was a teenager because I was a teenager. But I think what it did is it, it, it kept in my brain this notion of development and process. It, it hardwired it. And so everything that I've done since then has been about development and process, even music, right? Like, you know, music, music is very, it's very procedural and structural, right? So if you're, if you're a pop songwriter or playing rock and roll and you're going to be good at it, you're going to listen to the Beatles because the Beatles set a very specific structure in place for how a song works, right? Intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, coda, right? Like it's a structure and it's a process. And you, if you learn a lot about how to write songs, you're going to hit that, or you're going to listen to James Brown because James Brown is going to have intro, verse, jam, break, bridge, jam, break, outro. It's a structure. It's a process. And you're going to be into that. History is a structure and a process. The development of an idea over time, right? The Declaration of Independence articulates a notion of freedom that's absolutely impossible in its own time. But the slow process of unveiling that is very Hegelian and it, and it kind of works, right? Over time, that notion of freedom develops, it grows, it extends. It's different, right? So you're going to study that process and the development. Software, software is is also super procedural, right? Like, especially you know, uh, object-oriented programming that actually encapsulates procedures within procedures, right? So you're gonna you're gonna be drawn to that. I think for me, growing up at that moment where I was absorbing from my father the sense of his, his you know, we. My grandfather was an illiterate truck driver from Palermo, Sicily. He, he was a stowaway on a freighter at age 13 and came to the United States, right? He was an illegal immigrant. And uh, 
um, I grew up very in this very strong Italian Sicilian household with that sense of the movement of our family through the United States in that time. I think it made a lot of sense to me at the level of process. And that became kind of the grounding point between those three different professions that I've had in my life. I think that's great. You mentioned a few things right now, just kind of procedural thinking, kind of the ways that these three pursuits, passions fit together. You mentioned earlier, continuous learning, learning tech, and then now still trying to get better at guitar, for example, and just starting your podcast. Do you have any advice for people who might be trying to do this similar kind of career transitions or starting something new? Uh, we talked earlier um, before we started recording about doing what you're passionate about. You know, why would you take a job that you're not passionate about? And somebody who's not passionate in the job now might be thinking, what can I, like, what can I do to um, kind of get into what I really like? A couple of common themes there. Do you have any uh, advice or thoughts about how other people might also do similar things that you do, taking on three passions kind of at once? Yeah, it's very punk rock. It's very punk rock. And it is the best way to do something is to do it. So, you know, I don't know how many people will talk about doing things and, you know, blah, blah. Look, if you're going to do something, go do it. Just go do it. Right. So what was what was about one of the reasons hardcore was such a fertile moment, revolutionary moment in 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 the history of rock and roll was because you know, when Articles of Faith started in Chicago, a lot of those clubs would not have us. First of all, we didn't have much of a following, but secondly, uh, it, the music was too extreme. So they, they wouldn't have us. So what did we do? We put on our own shows. And every, every hardcore band worth of salt did that, right? Minor Threat did that, SSD did that, Dead Kennedys did that, right? So part of the story of hardcore was, fuck it, we're just gonna do it. Like, you say we can't do it. We can't play like this. Well, we're going to do it anyway. You say we can't play in the clubs. We'll make our own clubs, right? You say we don't, we, you know, there, there were no AR reps hanging around dangling cocaine with a rock and roll contract in 1981 for hardcore bands. It didn't happen. So we put our own labels out. We put our own records out, right? The first Articles of Faith 7-inch was on our own label, Wasteland Records, right? And some of those labels are still today. Biafra still has our alternative tentacles and Ian still has Discord, right? So if you're going to do something, do it. That is very punk rock. I, I forget which was it band it was. Maybe it was the Sex Pistols, but uh, they, they, they contemplated that they need to learn the instruments before they started doing their first shows. And, and I think they're mad. Is, no, there's no reason to do that. Just go play. <laughs> okay, know? do it. We'll yeah, figure it out. Until you make it. <laughs> I, I think that's a great message to, uh, to end on. The best way to do something is just do it. Bill, do you have uh, other things uh, that you want, we want to close on? Uh, no, I think this has been great. I, I love uh, how you're able to connect your, your three very different passions, um, which uh, are fascinating because they, they really, uh, you particularly don't think of, you know, academia and, and uh, history and hardcore punk rock. And even when you were talking about Microsoft, there was almost a historical conversation looking back through Microsoft and its growth. So uh the true historian right there. So this has been great. So I uh, totally appreciate you taking the time. Well, I love your, I love your podcast. I love that it focuses on the creativity and programming. I mean, in, in software, honestly, engineering gets a bad rap. People, people tend to bifurcate for reasons I, I don't understand. People will bifurcate between the artist and the engineer. And there, there's so much creativity involved in engineering and there's so much engineering involved in artistry. This, this, is a, this is a fictive division. So it's great to see you guys compass both. 
Great. And your insights are really going to help our audience. Excellent. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Vic. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Enjoy, enjoy the communication. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.